You're listening to the West Side Podcast, a part of the L.A. International Church of Christ family of churches, worshiping God in L.A. since 1989. Right, let's, let's everyone bow our heads real quick. Father God, thank you so, so very much that we have this opportunity to gather together, Father God. Um, allow us to just open up our hearts, Father God, and our mind and deep shares the word with us, Father God. Man. Let's leave all of the junk that you know we brought in here out there, Father God, and let's just connect with the Spirit right now and connect with each other in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So tonight we're going to take a look. Um, I know if we look at the last month or so, uh, when um, Professor Nick Zola was here, he really kind of got into a very layered approach of how to read the Gospels. And the how-to is important. I think there's a lot of great things. But what I wanted to do tonight is actually take a a, a little different tact on that and actually to go in and to say, how did those people that we learned who they were being written to actually apply the Gospels? And I want to do that through the eyes of one of the most interesting groups of people that we have preconceived notions about, the Pharisees. What comes to your mind when you hear the word Pharisee? Negative. Dave? Okay. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Okay. What comes to your mind when you hear the word Irish? But no, honestly, and seriously, this is a serious question. It's going somewhere. No. What do you think of honest? Like, what do you honestly think when you think of the Irish when you hear the word Irish? The Irish people. <laughs> What do you think about when you hear the term Mexican? <laughs> Family? Yeah. In all seriousness, we can have different opinions and different viewpoints on groups of people, but we use this word Pharisee sometimes so flippantly that we forget you're actually talking about a cultural group of people that you're assigning a group of characteristics to, but who were they really? The Pharisees started in about 100 B.C. or so, and it came about due to a very interesting thing, the Maccabee Revolt. The Maccabees, if anyone knows about Hanukkah, started a revolution that we oftentimes in modern times talk about it being against the Assyrians, the Greco-Assyrians. It was really a civil war amongst Jews. It was the folks that would later become the Pharisees revolting against the Grecian Jews, the Hellenistic Jews, because they believed they had perverted the faith. They had stopped reading their scriptures. They had stopped following what the scripture said to the point where they erected a statue of Zeus in the temple in Jerusalem. They were sacrificing and pouring, uh, pigs on the altar of God. They were having orgies inside the temple of God in Jerusalem and practice of worship because of the influence of the Greco-Assyrians. And so this became a thing. So the Pharisees were born out of a group of people that believed in restoring strict adherence to Scripture, a devotion to God, and that the Bible was living and active. That's what their core tenets were at that time. And they became this group, and they lasted until about the end of the first century after Jesus And so that you know, when you talk about the Pharisees, who are they today? Rabbinic Judaism, modern Judaism, is Pharisee. That's the entire foundation of it. The Pharisees created modern Judaism. All forms of Judaism. So if you actually use the term, it was actually in April, Mayor Pete, who's running for the Democratic uh, uh, nomination for president, called Vice President Mike Pence... A Pharisee. Well, the Jewish community took that as a racial slur. Because that's who they are. So would we use that to describe any other group of people? And I know where we're coming from and what we need. And sometimes you're seeing people use big P versus little P. We have these perceptions of what we think they are. But do these perceptions actually come from Scripture? Or do they come from the traditions of how we were taught Scripture? which is actually what their biggest challenge was in the time of Jesus, was their tradition versus the actual word of God. 
And so what I want to look at tonight is just who they were and how they applied the gospel. So as they interacted with Jesus, what happened? What did they believe? Who were they? How did it come from? And then what response did they give to the message of Jesus? And I think their response, in large part, is going to surprise many of you. So who were the Pharisees? Unlike we oftentimes think, they actually weren't a theological or religious group. They were a secular group of people. They were political activists. So they were a social movement, a school of thought in the Holy Land, in the Second Temple period and after the destruction of the Temple in 70 AD. The Pharisees, as I said, are the the foundation of modern Judaism and specifically gave birth to the rabbinic movement. The concept of a rabbi did not exist until after them. So in Jesus' day, there was no such thing as a rabbi. There were scribes and there were priests, but there were no rabbis. You had the sages and the scribes mostly. The Pharisee, what it literally means is to be set apart or separated. And why that is important is because, again, it goes back to that revolt. How that one area where we actually see that come back in line Rabbi Hillel, who's one of the founders in Jesus' time of the Pharisaical thought, was the teacher of Rabbi Gamaliel, who was the teacher of Paul and Stephen. And it was Stephen, and we know an incident that happened in Acts, when Steve, before Stephen is actually stoned, what was he called to do to help feeding of the Grecian widows of the orphans? We can look at it, and why a lot of times the Samaritans and some of these groups were separated was... Because you had had this civil war a hundred years earlier. And the country was still divided. And the Pharisees, or the Hebraic Jews, did not trust the Hellenistic or the Grecian Jews because they wanted to pervert the faith. They were trying to change the scriptures. They were trying to de-emphasize the role of God in the modern life of a Jew at the time. And so you had this battle going on, and that even filtered into the church. So you had the Hebraic Jews in the early church in Acts not taking quite as good a care of the widows that were Greek because they still saw them as, you're the people that defiled the temple. You're the people that didn't follow God. You're the people that have, one of the reasons we're enslaved is because of you. They blamed them for that. And there was this battle that kind of went on in this tension. Oops. Some of the stuff that they believed in, that well, kind of who they were, they believed in free will, but they also believed that uh, but they believed in free will, but that God had foreknowledge of our collective destiny. So they weren't predestination and they weren't strict pre-will, uh, free will. They believed you have absolute free will, but God knows how mankind's going to turn out. The end of the game's already been decided. They believed in the resurrection of the soul. And they, but they debated whether the, whether the, it was for the, they, they believed the soul resurrected, but even amongst the Pharisees, they argued about whether the body was going to resurrect. So they believed that there was going to be some form of existence for the soul in the future, but they didn't know if the physical body would be a part of that. So they did believe in heaven. And then, um, so they, since they believed in the resurrected soul, they conversely, they did believe in eternal punishment as well. They believed that if you were an evil person, you would receive eternal punishment. Very similar to what we believe today. The people were a priesthood. This is a thought that came from them specifically, that the nation of believers is a royal priesthood, that it wasn't for the priest class, but it was for all of us to execute the scriptures and follow, and for them, the Torah, the first five books. And as we kind of set up a little more of this background before we look at a couple specific scriptures and incidents that I want to see how we can apply the Gospels to our life through, the, through some of their interactions with Jesus. Some of the specific Pharisees listed in scripture. Paul the Apostle. Absolutely a Pharisee mentioned in scripture in Acts 9 that he was a Pharisee. Joseph of Arimathea, who buried Jesus' body after being crucified. A Pharisee. Gamaliel in Acts 5 is the one who said... Uh, when uh, some of the apostles had been arrested, he said, let them go. And he defended Jesus and he defended their way and cautioned against in case they are from God. We need to trust who they are. And there's actually quite a big tradition that Rabbi Gamaliel is also one of the modern founders of modern Judaism. But it's actually also believed there's a pretty big historical tradition now that says he actually secretly converted to Christianity before he died. 
that it's been that some of the records have been um, suppressed. Nicodemus we know about, and we've actually teached this one in our first principle series. But we're going to look at that one specifically in a minute because I'm going to help. I want to offer a different way to read the scripture than we have traditionally taught. The council at Jerusalem in Acts 15 about whether new, what did new believers need to know before they came to faith? What was expected before baptism was started because the Pharisees that were Christians were trying to advocate that you must be circumcised prior to salvation. And then finally in Acts 22, there's a group mentioned as the followers of the way, Christians, followers of Jesus, the entire sect were Pharisees. So right there you see a long list of people that have a different line of thinking and a different result of who they were. And actually, if you look at these 77 passages in the Bible that reference the Pharisees, generally when it's challenging, it references them as a group of people. And when it talks about them specifically, it's always positive. None of these incidents here are negative. So it's interesting to see how do we start to reconcile that and what can we learn. And who the Pharisees again were when Nick talked about, remember the time, those of you in those classes, remember, what did he say about when the scriptures were written? Probably 70 to 100 AD is the earliest writings of the Gospels. And again, there were only two sects of Judaism that existed at that time when the Bible was actually written. Not Jesus' time, there were four main groups. But at the time, and then the Christians would have been the fifth, but at the time, by this time, after 70 A.D., when the scriptures were written, there were two sects of Jews left. The Pharisees and the Christians. That was it. And so the debate was, at the time the scriptures were being written, they were fighting amongst the Gentiles who was going to convert more people. Who's right? Who's going to win? They were in the same synagogues together. They didn't have separate churches. So you had the Pharisees and that didn't believe in Jesus, and you had the Jesus followers, the disciples, worshiping in the same house of God. And so they kind of coexisted in the same place. Matthew 23 is one of the most comprehensive, and this is where uh, I think we can see how much Jesus has interacted with these Pharisees as he interacted with this group of people. That who he was and what happened, there's a lot of lessons. And as we go through it, I want us to see if the Pharisees is more of a generic term when the Bible's written, if it more represented Jews as a whole. What can we say about it as us? And if we start to look, because when we look at what they believed, some of the things that we talked about, they believed in free will, but God, God is in control. That they believed in the resurrection. They believed in the life to come. They believed in punishment for sin. All very similar things to us. They had a very similar uh, uh, theology. So what happens when it comes in in Matthew 23 and, and, and the entire chapter, Jesus just eviscerates a lot of the people coming. One of the things you should know about the Pharisees is that they respected above all else. Above all else. Had two parts to it. Study the scriptures. Knowledge was important. And one, and the secondary way that you gain knowledge is arguing with each other to figure out what God, what God is like. You debate each other and expose it. And they did, they weren't afraid of diverse opinion, but they absolutely believed. So if you start to realize that what they did and they believed was arguing in the scripture was a way to find out the truth. Kind of what we have with modern apologetics where you see the debates on YouTube or wherever you can see them. You can kind of see these modern debates. The Pharisees did that every day in the synagogue. There was no such thing as a church service. They went to the scripture, they prayed, and then they sat around and argued over the scriptures. They challenged each other. And so what it does is, so if you set that backdrop, that they they would come to Jesus, and they would challenge him with different things. They were also the religious, they were also the most devout of all the religious classes. And so what they believed was that it was their duty their sworn duty that if you come and teach, right now let someone else come in that door we don't know and start trying to teach us the Bible. You might have some questions for them. Does it mean you're being disrespectful? No, it means you're making sure that they are who they say they are. Their job was to test Jesus. And so as we start to look through these two interactions, Matthew 23 and then uh, Nicodemus, my brother, who's a rabbi, taught me an interesting lesson. His process of becoming a rabbi had one very important element. 
He could not be deemed a rabbi until he could answer every, every question that was asked. So anywhere he was in the world, if the rabbi or the rabbi's wife, any rabbi and any rabbi's wife saw him anywhere in the world, they could pose a theological question to him and he had to be able to answer it on the spot. And if he couldn't, he wasn't ready to be rabbi. And the second rule that my brother the rabbi still practices to this day and that you could apply to the Pharisees, a rabbi never asks a question he does not know the answer to himself. Oftentimes we think of these questions and these interactions that the Pharisees are throwing out questions that they didn't know the answers to. But as we're going to go through this, you're going to start to discover they actually did. And I think there's a lot of lessons in there for them and us of how we can be, and if we look at our own movement and how we have interacted with other churches, ourselves, the world, I think there's a lot of things we can look at ourselves and see, is there anything that we can learn from how the Pharisees handled things versus how we handle things as well in our application of the Scriptures? So in Matthew 23 and verse 3, kind of starts out, Jesus is very clear. He extols the people to listen to the Pharisees, but not to follow their example. Why do you think he wanted them to listen to what they said? What was that? They were on track. Yeah. Their theology was actually mostly correct. Mostly. That much of what they believed, the core principles, read the Torah, be a good person, give to God, give your offering, do not give up meeting together, punishment for sin. They believed all these core tenets. So listen to them, but don't follow. Why? Because hypocrisy, once you believe in the truth, hypocrisy can follow. Once you have a standard, we know the scripture says, by whatever measure you, you judge, you too will be judged. So we have to look at ourselves and ask, what standard do we apply to our fellow man, to each other in this room, to our city, our community, our church, to other churches, to whomever we interact with? What do we do in our lives? How do we address the preconceived notions we've had? Some of us have been in other churches within our own movement, and we've, had to, and we've seen very different things. There are even different regions or different campuses or different congregations within L.A. You can see they're very different from how they are with one another. Each one has its own personality. But so Jesus challenges them in Matthew 23, but it's very specific about not following their example. And what is that example he's trying to call out? He questions their love of titles. Rather than seeing each other as brothers. What do we do with each other? Do you want to be a family group leader because you want the title? Do you want to stand up here and teach because you want to show how smart you are compared to other people? What is your motivation for what you do? Do we see each other as brother and sister in a real way? Not with lip service, but how do you do it? And Jesus challenged that because the Pharisees walked around condemning people. That group of people went around and they got caught up. And their motivation at first was honest. I'm going to hold you because just a hundred years ago, our people weren't following the Bible right. How did our church start? They questioned whether the mainline church of Christ was still following the Bible that they'd stop reading it, that they'd stop applying it. They came out of the same type of mindset. There was a very legitimate reason for what they wanted. But what was the challenge? The challenge is to remain humble. It's to remember why you did it, that it's about the Bible, not about how you do it. And a challenge for us, many of us in a campus, singles, a lot of us in here, we, we have a lot of ideas on how we want to apply the scripture we have great advice we give to one another do we start to elevate our oral tradition our oral teaching over the written word how do we balance the two i could tell you all right a very real issue for a lot of us is about being pure so i'm going to tell you be pure never ride alone in a car with a sister that comes out of an honest and, and sincere heart but at what point do I make sure my heart is because I'm trying to follow and adhere to the scripture of God and at one point am I following it because that was the advice I'm given and that's what I'm supposed to do and it's not based on any scripture at all. The same advice might be given in both instances, but why am I following it? What's in my heart? What's at the core of what I believe? And then one of the challenges this group of people had was 
they so badly wanted everyone to be able to apply the scriptures that they got focused on their traditions. What they were legalistic about wasn't the scripture. What they were legalistic about was ritualism. They were legalistic with how you worshiped God. Not actually about what the Bible said. They're actually pretty liberal when you study them about what they actually believe the Bible said. But what they actually struggled with was that. And so they got caught up in these titles. And you can see it. And I, and I watched it. I used to watch uh, my first time I ever went to Israel. I remember standing at the, at the Wailing Wall, at the Western Wall. And there's a very famous rabbi. You go there, he'll still be there to this day. He's out there every day in the courtyard. And it's like right out of the Gospels. He stands out in the middle of the courtyard where no one's within 30 feet of him. So you can clearly see him, but back far enough that he's near the tourists so they can hear him. And he's got his prayer book and he's out loud and he's waving his hands and beating his chest every single day, hours on end. And it is clear he's doing it so that other people see him. He wants credit for the title he's achieved. He forgot. Do you talk to those folks? Are you kind to those folks? Do you break bread with them? Do you love them? Do you serve them? Do you give to them? Do you live out the scriptures you profess? And this was a huge challenge for them. When Matthew 23 comes, he, warned, he also then, he, as he starts going, Jesus really gets lathered up, but he really starts coming in on them. And, he's, and he warns them about prioritizing integrity of financial contribution more than integrity to God himself and his values of justice and grace and mercy. He does that in those scriptures. I should have set my sleep timer at a different time. Um, and so verses 17 to 25 get into this long stanza. And it gets in and he starts talking about it. And how is this for us? It doesn't mean that offering isn't important. That scripture actually talks about it. About valuing the gold of the temple more than the temple itself or God. But no, by honoring God, the money shall be blessed. Versus from the money, God shall be blessed. And I think we can challenge with that and struggle with that living in the West. And living in L.A. and California. Where it's keeping up with the Joneses. Keeping up with what we have. We can have all these blessings of life and we think, the better I do, the more I can help God. Rather than the more I serve God, the more God can bless me. Because I'm serving Him and I'm reflecting His scripture. It doesn't mean that it's not great to want to do it, but we can have that challenge. Uh, I get the chance of being helping out with the Screenland minister right now and I was part of AMS, the, the Arts Media Sports Ministry, for a number of years. And one of the biggest challenges that we had was you would hear people quite a bit say, I'm going to become a famous actor because then therefore I could be a good example for God. How about you be a great example for God and then if you become, and if you achieve success in your career, whatever it is, great. But we can get caught up in these different things and our priorities get mixed up. And I think that for with us in the church, we have to decide what our priorities are as a body, as individuals, as family groups, as ministries, what is important to you? Is it holding on to things if you've been around longer than 10 years and you remember some letter written by some guy you never met a number of years ago? Well. Not that there weren't legitimate grievances in there. But are you caught up focusing on that? Or are you focused on the scripture today about how we're going to live? I could be as critical by, by nature. I challenge everything. I am, I, I am a contrarian by nature is the polite way to say it. Obnoxious and questioning everything is probably the better way to say it. But it, it is one of those things that we have to do. What are we going to do in our nature to go and look at it? You've seen it within our own congregation. Last summer we brought in, we brought in someone who taught and challenged our own beliefs on women. We brought in someone who taught on the Holy Spirit in a way that some may agree and some may disagree. You have this summer Nick coming in who, who, has, who has a knowledge and a history of our church and he's at Pepperdine and a similar kinship of a, a similar church, but not necessarily part of our movement. Do we believe everything he said? I don't know. I'm not here to judge what he said. You can go study that out for yourself and let the scripture decide what's true and what's not. Study out what I say to see if it's true or not. But what our challenge is is to make sure that we get here and that we understand how do we, do we, are we understanding what justice, grace, and mercy is? It doesn't mean we don't tell the truth. It doesn't mean that we don't challenge. Younger generations are prioritizing a certain set of values much more than the generation before it. 
Doesn't mean the generation before it doesn't have a lot still to give. We don't want to be judged. It's a whole set of priorities that get mixed up in there. And then lastly in this chapter, he chastises them to focus on the inside as they do the outside. I could actually get someone to read this passage um, in Matthew 23, verses 26 through 36. A volunteer. Go for it, Daniel. Uh, Verse 26 says, You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Therefore you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Those are some strong words of a group of people. But of all those strong words, if you boiled it down and took it out, he said something in there that's very important that I think is as applicable today as it was back then. He starts talking. And he warns them and he says something that I think we say about the Pharisees. If I lived when they lived, I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have misread the prophets. I wouldn't have persecuted Jesus. I wouldn't have persecuted everything else. We can become haughty. We can become prideful. We can become foolish. I can as much as anyone. Man, I could just, there are times in my life I just hang my head in shame when I look at how I applied the scriptures, when how I did it with other people. And I can sit there and say that's what I was taught. I can sit there and say that that's just the way the church did it back then. I can say that's just the way we do things now. I can say all these different things. But at the end of the day, I gotta look at myself, and I have to look at the actions that I take. And what I, what I take heart from all this, within this very scathing rebuke, is we're no different. Every generation in the Bible was just as messed up as we are today. And these folks had a choice. They had a choice. He was coming at them and challenging their beliefs left and right. Were they going to shrink and say it got too hard, give up, go what's the point anymore, y'all are tripping, the other leaders are messed up, the church is messed up, or the synagogue at the time is messed up, Israel's messed up. Everything is all messed up. It's not what I once believed in. The leaders are crooked. The Sadducees for them. The Sadducees were the one percenters of the day. They were actually like the one percent of the one percent. They had bought the high priesthood with money and wealth. And the Pharisees had a choice. I can either turn back to God and get to the scriptures, and get a proper understanding, and recognize and seek the Messiah, or I can ignore it. And some did, and some didn't. We have to look at ourselves and go, all right, when was the last time you were in a Bible study after midnight with someone? You know that used to be the norm in our church. That used to be the norm. When I studied the Bible, when people studied the Bible with me, I had no idea. Every one of my Bible studies, because I was a waiter at the time, and as a waiter, I got off about 11.30, midnight, sometimes 1 a.m., 
And so my studies were any time from midnight to 2.30 in the morning. And the three gentlemen studied the Bible with me faithfully every single night for a week and a half. Every night. What made their sacrifice even more? They never said a word because they weren't worried about being recognized for what they were doing. They were all, two of the three were engineers that built freeways, which meant they had to be at the work at three in the morning. And were studying the Bible with me at midnight. Why? Because they were motivated by God's love. They were motivated by the Scriptures. They chose to keep giving. They didn't boast of it. They didn't advocate their belief. They lived it out. It's the challenge of any group of people that takes a stand and a strong stand on Scripture, of which we're a part of. But there's a lot of differences we have with the Pharisees, so I'm not completely trying to compare us to them. But what I'm challenging is, we claim to be as devoted as they were. The Bible says your righteousness should surpass theirs, and they cared about it a lot. Sometimes about the wrong things, but they cared about it a lot. But for us, what do we care about? What are we willing to do? And I'm not advocating going to the extreme and letting your life fall apart because you're like, God everything and me nothing. There's responsibility. I'm not advocating the other extreme. But too many of us have swung back and we've become comfortable and we've given up. We decided it's not worth the sacrifice. What do I really believe? Do I see the power of the living God? I'm going to take care of me. I'm going to worry about mine. I gave at the office. I've given everything I need to give. I have served. I've sacrificed. I've studied. I've baptized. I gave my special contribution. I did this. I did that. It's now the next generation's turn. It's now the next generation looking at, well, if they ain't doing it, why am I doing it? We can all look outside of each other. You know, there's even within the church, there's oftentimes been a thing between campus and singles where campus will look at the singles as, man, those people don't look very happy. I'm going to go there. And then there's some single groups. You hang out at Chuka Mofei and Zahid's house. You're like, oh, all right. Some of us got Peter Pan syndrome in the church, but we're going to ride it to the ride or die. <laughs> we're going to enjoy life. So it's not universal. But we can have that challenge, and we have to look and see the same challenge the Pharisees had, we had. So they got confronted like this over and over and over and over again. But how did they respond to the Scripture? Well, their most famous person of that day that was a Pharisee, was Nicodemus. He was the chief rabbi of Jerusalem. He's aware of all these other challenges that have gone on in Jerusalem. This is his house. He's the one in charge of Jerusalem. So he knows everything Jesus is teaching when he goes to the temple courts. He's aware. He understands. He realizes that his, his class of people get called out left and right. But he had heard it But what did he think? Oftentimes, we've often taught in our study, when we talk about this interaction between Nicodemus and Jesus, what is, some of you have heard this before, what was our traditional reason we taught why Nicodemus went to him at night? Does the scripture say that? In fact, it says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Does that sound like a scared guy shrinking into a room? We also have it recorded. How do we have it recorded? There were witnesses. So you know, a rabbi, how many disciples does a rabbi typically have? You know this answer. Twelve. So Jesus would have had his twelve. Nicodemus would have had his 12, and you would have had a very interesting West Side Story moment inside this house. <laughs> and typically what would happen in the, in the hierarchy of the society is Peter the oldest would have paired up with Nicodemus' oldest student, and then all the way down to John and Mark and all the younger guys with their youngest. They would have paired off with each other and would have watched their rabbis have this interaction and would have been talking to each other. That's typically how this interaction happened. 
Jews love to talk. My people love to talk. And I am from my people. Um, but as he says, it's because it's a why did perhaps, let's answer this question. There, there's actually a very logical reason on why he may have come at night. The scriptures say it was Passover week. He's the head rabbi. The city of Jerusalem would say to go from 25,000 people on a normal time or to 100, depending on you believe. I'm going to go with the conservative numbers. And that Jerusalem was 25, 50,000 people and would have swelled to over 125,000 people during Passover. He got a lot of lambs to bless for the Passover meal. He got all his big financial contributors coming in time. He's got to press the flesh. He's got to get all the offerings coming in. How you doing? How you doing? We got to have a, ask Todd how many requests he gets in a week for, uh, hey bro, can we get some time? Can we get together? During the day, not going to be such a good time for him to go and have a, a, a me time and conversation with somebody and let's debate the scripture. No, meeting, 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 prayer, meeting, meeting, service, prayer, meeting, prayer. He would have had all these things all day. So for a practical reason, he went at night because that's the time he had free. And then remember, he stas- then he comes down and he talks about this and he asks Jesus a question. He says, well, Jesus answers to him about being a, a teacher from God. Truly, truly, I say to you, and this is on John 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Why do you think he asked that question? He knew the answer. He knew the answer. How do we know that? Here's what the Pharisees believed in writing prior to Jesus' birth. This is what they actually believed. And this uh, thing will be shared on our website. It's a Google slide, so it's going to be shared um, out with the recording of, of tonight if you want to get the references later. Times, these are the times a Jew was reborn in life. The term to be born again was a very old term. And there's very many times, and a lot of these are still done to this day. And to this day, when a Jewish man gets married, he is baptized to be reborn into marriage. He's to become a new creation. To this day, observant Jews baptized before their wedding day. When someone converted to Judaism, they were considered a newborn and they were baptized. And by baptized, we mean mikvah, which means to be immersed in a body of water. In fact, they were so zealotry about this. They were so serious about baptism that they built the cities around where the baptismal had to be. They chose where the baptismal goes. Then they built the city around it. They've had other beliefs. It had to have a certain number of gallons of water. It had to be fresh water, not salt water. It had to have an inlet and an outlet because it's living water. So bathtub, okay. A lake, not okay. Inlet, outlet. They also believed with the... uh, And so with it, they they did it and they believed that... uh, And they were so strict. One of the things I find funny when I start to read what they did versus what we do... We talk about, oh, you've got to have and you've got to hold someone down. We've got to make sure every part of the body is under the water when we baptize them. They didn't believe you could touch someone when they got baptized. They had to dip themselves. And they had to dip themselves seven times to make sure they got under their hand. Any guesses on why they didn't believe they could touch you? They're saying, because if you were to touch them, you would block that area. Correct. The area was not underwater if you were touching it. They were that disciplined about it. Not written in scripture. This is just their practice. But that's how serious they took it. To this day, Jewish men at Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur every year, all men in Israel and in the diaspora are baptized to seek forgiveness from sin for them, their family and the entire nation of Israel. They believed they had to be born again at that time. Every year, and it's still done to this day. There are a number of proper mikvahs around L.A. where it still transpires every year in the fall. When God made Moses into a new man, he referred to him being born again when he called him to speak and be his spokesperson on behalf of him. And also the Pharisees knew when a king took the throne, they were born again through baptism. The birth to come was to represent the future life we would have in a resurrected life. This is everything they believed, yet he still asked the question, How can you be born again as an adult? Here's all these instances where they were already doing it. 
So Jesus then talks to him and gives him one of the most famous scriptures that we don't apply to this context of the Nicodemus argument a lot. Go to any sporting event. We love John 3.16 for years. Rainbow Man for years and years. The late, great Rainbow Man. Anyone, anybody remember Rainbow Man? How much am I dating myself? A few of you, a couple of you. Guy used to wear a rainbow wig, show up at football games behind the goalpost and hold up a sign that says John 3.16. He toured the country doing it. So now, in light of all this, remember, the rabbis believed what they believed. We've talked a little bit about what the beliefs of the Pharisees were. And now we're going to see what is Jesus addressed to them. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be safe through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does... What is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This right here was what the Pharisees believed. We talked about it earlier. Eternal punishment for sin. They believed in light and darkness. Eternal punishment. They believed in all of these elements. But Jesus is telling Nicodemus, I am the fulfillment of what it you come. I am the one to provide the way that you've been doing. It's Passover week. The Passover you take year after year after year after year waiting for the Messiah to come. I am him and I am the only way that you're going to find this salvation. He confronts him with truth. He confronts him with it. But we've often talked about Nicodemus sneaking in at night. But now we see a rabbi asking his questions probably knew the answer. These were very common and he's the chief rabbi. Just because you make someone a, put someone on staff doesn't necessarily mean they know the scripture, but these guys would have been tested. They would have known it. And what they did was they had to sit there and they had to now answer a question and wrestle with it. Nicodemus's choice was to risk everything and become a disciple. History shows that Nicodemus lost all his power, lost all his money, lost everything he had following Jesus for the rest of his life. It's a challenge, and it's a question we have to do. Oftentimes we hear the the horror stories of the Pharisees, and some of it is rightly deserved. But these are a zealot group of people that followed the scripture with their whole hearts that believed in the truth, and we are in that same boat. Does this scripture still ring true to us, or is it numb to us? Is this scripture guide and motivate everything that we do? Do we seek that forgiveness every day? Do we seek that life? Do we present that light to the rest of the world? Nicodemus and these folks, and then Apostle Paul, and on and on and on and on and on, and the 12, and then the 72, and then the 3,000, and then on and on and on believed in one thing, that Jesus Christ was the Son of the living God, that you could have be freed from the eternal punishment of your sin because he was going to pay that price. And every decision they made was motivated by that. And so we have a choice. We have a choice on how we're going to live. We have a choice on what we're going to do. We have a choice whether we're going to continue to give and study the word and hold true to the Bible or are we going to continue to make sacrifices here and there? Because the Pharisees, remember, they started out in a great place. Everybody around me tripping. Everybody around me not worshiping God the way they're supposed to. Zeus and getting their party on and doing everything else. Uh, to borrow from a word Chuka loves to use a lot, they were get, it was lit. It was lit. Still weird to me that that word came back 30 years later from when we used to use it, but interesting. But, nothing new under the sun. Um, But, they had a choice and they stood up for something. And in the beginning, they were on fire and they were excited and they were giving and they were challenging and they were willing to do anything to stand up. They believed in dying and martyrdom and sacrificing what they believed in. 
And I believe when we all got baptized, there isn't anything we wouldn't do for God. But then we slowly start to make justifications and choices along the way that pull back a little bit at a time. Yeah, I did that, but I was younger then, or I was more fired up then, but that was before I had this class, or that was before I had this job, or that was before I had this going on, or that going on. We have these challenges that are there. And sometimes there are legit things, sick family members, tragedy. There are things that, that, that call for our attention. It's a, it's, it's a hurting world. But our choices and our decisions that we make need to be motivated by a knowledge of the scriptures. Our choices need to be motivated by application of these scriptures. It's great to know all the stuff that, that Professor Nick taught us over the last several weeks. But if we don't actually apply the scriptures, the knowledge is useless. But if we apply it, the knowledge is everything. The knowledge is going to help guide you and support you and take you along the way. It's going to strengthen you and give you hope. It's going to renew your faith. One of the greatest things the Pharisees did is they actually ushered in the way for the New Testament to be accepted. Because prior to them, the Sadducees believed only the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, were holy. It was the Pharisees, without them, Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Proverbs, none of that would be read today without them. They said that scripture was divine. They said that by that scripture was there, and that ushered in in the openness for the New Testament to be written later on. So there is good that came from them. And every time an individual is talked about, you see the results of their life. Joseph of Marathea gave up his own tomb to see the Christ buried. Paul gives up everything, goes from being a, a, a zealot in the highest order, making sure persecuting Jewish believers and having them killed sometimes for their beliefs to becoming one of the ringleaders, risking everything. But do we continue to make those choices? And when we look at the Pharisees, when we look at some of these lives and we see some of these people and what they did and some of the extraordinary acts they did, it wasn't perfect. And that's why I like looking at this group of people. I like looking at them because they weren't perfect. They didn't get it right. But there was good that was positive, and they had the same choice we have today. We can stand up for the scriptures we believe in. We can stand up for what we want. We can choose to give. We can choose to serve. We can choose to love. I'm not advocating. Any of you guys have heard me talk before? No, I don't advocate method. I'm advocating principles. I don't care how you do it. Do it. Each generation will decide the best way to go about it. I think it's one of the brilliance of the Bible. The Bible, with some exceptions, doesn't give a lot of methods gives you a lot of principles. Don't hate. Don't kill. Don't do this. Don't do that. Love. Be gracious. It doesn't... It doesn't define you have to do it exactly this way. But there is a standard. And I think we need to ask ourselves and we need to look at ourselves and say, what am I... What do I still believe in? What am I willing to give to what am I willing to build? And culture is hard to build. A community is hard to build. The singles heard me rail on this for a long time. I do not believe in building a church. I believe in building the community of God. A church I can leave. A church I can change. A community, family, that's much harder to leave. It's much harder to leave. Because it's motivated on the principles of God and who we are. And there are many different beliefs on different issues in this room. And good. Let's not be perfect. Let's not be clean. Let's not, be, let's not all be Stepford disciples and walk in the same way and talk the same way. Have what you believe. But have it be based on the scripture. Be willing to talk about it openly with each other. And not in the back room and criticizing the pulpit, or criticizing your Bible talk leader, or criticizing your roommate, or criticizing the person you're dating, or married to, or will be married to. We do all these things to tear each other down, inadvertently, but a lot of times it goes back to the, some of the same stuff. We're more consumed with ourselves than we are on the cross. And at the end of the day, that is everything. When the Pharisees got it right, they got it right because it was the cross and not them. 
when they focused on them and their way, they got it wrong. So focus on who you are before the living God and conform to him. Don't conform him to you. That's what the Pharisees, one of their greatest mistakes. Let's make God like us. Let's define what that looks like. Let's give you a picture. Let's define all these different aspects of God. But who they were as a people at their heart was honest and sincere. Sometimes honestly wrong, but honest and sincere. And not everyone. You can't say that of any group of people. You can't say that about me. I'm not always honest. I'm not always sincere. I'm a sinful, wicked, evil wretch who has gone through a lot of stuff. And that's what the Bible teaches us as we seek the Bible. We are created in the image of God. We are but a, a mist and a vapor. We're, we're a set of balance. We're a set of, you get too high, I need to knock you down a peg. You get too low, I need to build you up. We need to understand the balance of the scriptures and it all centers back to John 3.16 and the cross. It all centers back to that. And all this other stuff that we fret over, all this other stuff we complain about is window dressing. All this other stuff, who am I going to go on a date with? This person showed up late. You didn't tell me that in the right way. You didn't believe this. You didn't say that. Where's your offering? Why should I give this? Why should I do that? Why should I follow you? We've got to get off of this challenge of me versus you, of my high horse or my opinions or my traditions, and get back to pure and faultless religion, get back to pure gospel. And when we do, we may make a lot of the same choices we're making now, but we'll do it from the right motivation. Seek to find other believers wherever they are. Seek to find those that love God and want to be around God wherever they are. Unite. Be be bound with them. Let's not get caught up in the petty. Let's get caught up in the truth. And with this last thing, I just want us to look at this. Just remember this one last time. Motivation was that he loved the world. It was God that loved the world. That he was given for you. Unless you can think, sometimes we can fall in. There's a, uh, an old Jewish mindset that says, uh, Messianic Jews kind of believe, is that we talk about why was Jesus put on the cross? Why did he die? He died because he loved me. But we say, my sin killed Jesus. God decided that Jesus had died. Do you have the power to kill the son of the living God? I ain't that boastful. I sentenced myself to death. My sin set me to death. He chose to pay the price. I don't have any control over that. Thank God he did, because without it, I'm in a whole world of of hurt. So rather than negative, let's be inspired by the hope of the cross. Let's be inspired by who he is. Let's be inspired by where we're going. And when we go, let's not try to define each other with labels. Let's define each other with love. Thank you guys. Have a great night. You've just listened to the West Side Podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit thewestsidechurch.com or laicc.net.